0: Welcome to Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seton. Today, I'm here with Mike Gerard, Senior Vice President of Marker Construction. Mike, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Hugh. I'm excited to be here.
0: So am I. I really love that, that you as a senior executive and a contractor is joining me to talk about what you guys do. So let's talk
1: about what you do. Yeah, I think if I start a little bit with some of my history, most of my career has been spent in pre-construction. And obviously, An area that is getting a lot more focus of late and recent years, we can all tell stories about the trials and tribulations that we're going through today in pre-construction with market pressures, labor availability, you know, all these resources that are presenting challenges for us in pre-con. You know, so we're really putting a focus on developing that pre-construction process as kind of the, the linchpin or the keystone, you know, to project success at the early onset.
0: And what does that mean? So, so when you think about things to improve in, in pre-construction, what do you see? I mean, there's probably a number of things, but where would you where do you like to start first and say, look, we got to tighten this up?
1: Yeah, I think that's a great a great question, Hugh. And, and honestly, I think a lot of it starts with alignment of expectations. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of stakeholders in a, in a given project, and as a construction manager, we're we're one, but honoring the needs and of The ownership, the project itself, you know, understanding all those expectations and getting clear alignment really sets the tone of the path as we move things forward through development.
0: And that's the thing that pre-con people often say, right, is that you can ruin a job in the beginning. Of course you can. If expectations are wrong or costs are wrong or process or whatever it is, there's no making up for that.
1: Yeah, I agree hundred percent. I think those expectations sometimes are hard to describe, you know. And oftentimes what we're finding, especially today with with those issues that I've mentioned previously, there's a disconnect, you know, necessarily between what the project wants to be and what the project can afford to be. And that's where pre-construction is really designed to amp up and to solve those challenges and those those problems and kind of realize that vision.
0: And it's obvious that. When people talk about pre-con, you're very often talking about cost, like as you just mentioned. So value engineering often lives here, some of it anyway. But do you find that pre-construction also is the part where the way entities work together, the tone sort of gets set, that that you can establish trust in a working relationship that pays off later when pre-construction is run well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I I think you know the old adage "begin with the end in mind" really applies to pre-construction. You know, there's a vision what we want the project to be, and establishing all of the communication protocols, the trust, breaking down the walls. You know, the animosity maybe between the architect and engineer, the construction manager, and the client. The more alignment that we can generate at the onset and set that tone, you know, for the relation to the team all the way through construction is crucial, you know, to the project's success.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. How do you find what what are some trust building methods that you've found other than just being a good guy? <laughs>
1: Well, I think one of the things that that we really like to do is bring forth transparency. There's nothing to hide. We kind of approach construction manager at risk, very similar to maybe what some would experience in like an IPD. So we kind of feel like we're just an extension of the team. That's how we want everyone to envision these services that we're providing. And we really just full transparency. We put a lot of detail into our estimating services, our constructability review, how we engage the marketplace. And really want to get everyone's participation in that. We're not off running in a silo, doing our own thing and just reporting back with some cadence. It's an ongoing perpetual machine.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I love that your view of the trust of of IPD as a model, even if the rest of what's going on isn't quite the same, is really, really cool. I think it'd be nice if, if, if that is the model for the industry, and I'm sure it is sometimes and definitely isn't others.
1: Yeah, agreed. Unfortunately, I think there's still some cases where that doesn't happen. But we try really hard to set that tone at the onset, build that trust and rapport, and kind of roll up our collective sleeves to solve problems. So I want to switch
0: gears real quick and talk about one of the reasons you're on the podcast is, you know, we were introduced to each other by Heartland VC, who have this collection of, of partners in industry. They will often bring forward people that they really respect because they're visionary and they understand the role that technology can play, but aren't also Pollyanna about it. So the balance between what, what would work, but also what can move the business forward. How has that been a part of your career?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, first- You know, thankful also to the folks over at Heartland. They've been a really good partner. Really appreciate the things that they do. Hugh trying to align technological solution with real problems. Right, they're just a champion there, and we really appreciate those efforts. So, uh, they do a great job of kind of keeping us informed of maybe what they're hearing is being developed in the market that could be a potential solution, and trying to align that with issues that folks like us are are facing in the construction industry. So it's been a very helpful relationship with them to kind of bounce ideas and crowdsource, you know, issues, concerns, problems, challenges, you know, those kinds of things and work towards a common solution.
0: Yeah, and and I I guess what I'd love to talk about is how your career to date has brought you to a place where, where you're one of the people that would have that conversation. So you've worked at a number of big GCs, you know, really successful companies. And as a pre-construction person, it isn't obvious that you would have been the, the tech guy or the, or the guy who's having this conversation. I mean, more recently maybe, but, but across the last decade or so, I think it has as much to do with your attitude and your exposure as it might be to the role you played. How, is, how did that happen?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of this really starts early on in my career, like right after getting out of college. I was working for Honda Manufacturing as a facilities engineer. And being young and impressionable, a sponge, you know, coming out of college into my first experience, I think working for a Japanese-based company allowed me to really experience some of their lean thinking, you know, the, the lean Six Sigma, the things that are really starting to creep into construction today that you know, they've really kind of perfected as a craft years ago. And it spoke to me, you know, it, it really kind of drives forth efficiency, you know, small improvements leading to large improvements. And I think a lot of that just became ingrained in my DNA. And, you know, I'm a, I am tell people I'm a self-professed kind of efficiency geek. Here. I'm constantly looking for a way to save 15 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, and you add those up over the course of weeks and months. And that's real time, which allows me to work on other things and be more effective and efficient you know, in the tasks that I'm charged with.
0: And that brings us to one of the things that really excited me when you and I were talking before the podcast. And that's this idea of the tension between how individual and distinct projects are with how repeatable some of the processes we use to execute those projects are. So this idea of you know, and you brought up Six Sigma, which in manufacturing was how process control really became a science and not just taking notes and doing a better job. So you want to talk a little bit about your view on, on repeatable processes? Yeah,
1: I think the, the concept of processes being repeatable, you know, to, to borrow a phrase, if I may, from Brene Brown, clear is kind. And what process does is really define clarity. You know the expectations are known. Uh, everyone under, understands their kind of piece in the assembly line. How things have to go together to make the whole. So process to me um, is one of those things that really kind of drives forth that mechanism. How we get from point A to point B. The the caveat to that, or or the amplifier to that, is technology. You know, on technology on top of good process is like gasoline on a fire. Right. You know, it's an accelerant. But if the processes are not so strong and we try to implement technology to define the process, I, I think it can have a counterbalancing effect.
0: You know, I, somebody else I know likes to say, sometimes technology is just paving over cow paths. And that, that's valuable because you're making things faster. People are less involved in minutiae, but you haven't changed the fundamental way they go about doing what they're doing. You've just removed some of the stuff they don't like to do. And that seems like what you're saying, right? Is that if you haven't got your process right, yes, you might get a little bit of convenience and, and improvement in and some speed, but the fundamental way you do things hasn't shifted yet.
1: Yeah, I think that's correct. You know, I, I think it's a big investment of time and analysis to really build a process that can be repeatable. Mm-hmm. You know, to your earlier point, I think things were. A little bit more systematic an approach, you know, in the manufacturing industry, the widgets that run off the line are repeatable. Therein lies the challenge, I think, in, in this particular industry in construction. No two jobs are the same. No two clients are the same. So the challenge that we face every day is how do we build enough structure to the process that it is repeatable, but satisfy those one-off needs. Let's face it, we are a service industry. And uh, we've got to cater to the needs of the project and the client. So being nimble, being agile, but still maintaining enough rigidity that it is repeatable and trainable, uh, that's where process success really aligns with me.
0: And do you think about that as, as almost levels of what, what's happening? So lower, like individual things can be a lot more repeatable than the assembly or the, you know, the assembly of assemblies. Do you know what I mean? Where, where you're saying, look, when you're you know, installing something, drywall let's say a lot of what you're doing is the same every time where you're doing it the shape of it and so on might be different but if you decompose things you can get to a place where you've got things that are repeatable even if the the big assembly is not
1: yeah I agree 100% that's kind of where the you know the engineer in me kind of kicks in you know it's mm-hmm. a multivariate equation right what we do every day and how many of those variables can i fix and those things are really easy to write process for and develop standard. And if we can take 15 variables in the equation, fix 10, there's only five that are ambiguous that I've got to deal with.
0: I love that. And you know, coming back to Six Sigma and this idea of probability and statistics, what you're saying is we started this with 90% being variable. And if we can collapse that down to 15, we've done a lot. And and we've we've created the ability now to learn and optimize, you know. Two thirds of what we of what we do, and we we you know we reserve the th- the final third for things that you just can't anticipate. I don't know that those percentages are right or those proportions are right, but the idea being that you're reducing how much is
1: totally unpredictable to the things that genuinely are unpredictable.
0: Does that sound right?
1: That sounds exactly right. What's interesting to me, Hugh, is where can we go from here? Mm-hmm. You know, so all the new technologies that are being kind of introduced to the marketplace, offsite manufacturing removing those variables of weather, site constraints, and working in a confined environment, controlled environment, and being able to deliver the same product in the end, but more efficiently, more effectively. I think there's a lot of room in this particular industry to keep chipping away at those variables.
0: And I think we look at manufacturing now and say, golly, they, they, they've got it all figured out, which I don't think people actually say that, but it looks like it is more under control than other industries, certainly than construction and services while we're on the subject. It's not like bank tellers are, are you know, as good as somebody on an assembly line either. But the thing is, it took a decade more really to get there, right? The, the 90s were basically saying lessons learned in the 80s. We applied in the 90s to get to a place where manufacturing is, is where it is today. So th- they didn't fix everything all at once either, right? They started with bigger things and easier things that were easier to automate or easier, not automate is the wrong word, but to systematize. Then they got better and better at it. Agree. Did you see that when you were at Honda or is this just, we, we know this because we've read about, and we've read the
1: machine that changed the world. <laughs> no, I definitely did get the opportunity to experience that. I was involved in a project while I was there where they were really kind of reinventing their assembly processes and trying to be more nimble based on market demand. So for Honda, for example, the, the plant that I was working at primarily built Accords. Mm-hmm. That's one car in their lineup. Mm-hmm. But what if market demand shifted and maybe nobody's buying Accords, but they're buying more economical sedans and coupes like a Civic? You, know, you can imagine the kind of tooling that, that happens and the space based on the body size. A lot of those things had to be accounted for to allow for a quick changeover to adapt to market demand. Where that becomes really interesting is the approach that they took to figure that out. A lot of the folks that I was working with on the, on the Japanese side were really kind of referencing a term called zero base engineering. Mm-hmm. And really what they do with zero base is take the entire process apart all the way down to the nut and bolt and then rebuild it. And I'm looking for where things could possibly go awry on each of the steps that it takes to start with raw material through a finished product, rolling off the dynamometer.
0: That implies, well, the whole thing implies a really different way of looking at how work gets done, where you're talking about how work gets done much more than people have right now the time or patience to do usually in construction, right? I mean, usually people at the end of a job when they might be reflecting on things are already on the next job and and they're kind of straddling two while, while they finish it up. So I think that you know there's an interesting point here that you'll hear people sometimes say that that slow is fast that slow down a little bit and you'll you'll actually walk a better path or a safer path or whatever the variable is and i think that that what you're describing is a fundamental shift in how we might think about construction because you're saying slow down a minute let's focus on how we're doing things and improve and ultimately we'll wind up being a lot faster safer and more efficient
1: yeah i agree with that that approach you know and, and your assessment You'd- I think the challenge really is the industry is going the opposite direction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So faster, cheaper, better is kind of the expectation. That's the mantra, right? That we're all asked to deliver. So to your to your point about committing the time and the resources to really slow down, analyze it, take it apart, and then reconstruct it when it's most efficient mean, that's a really difficult task for us to commit to. Yeah. I'm pretty fortunate that in my role here at Marker, I get to spend a lot of my time doing just that, mm-hmm. but it leads to the kind of the bigger conversation about change management and change is hard, right? We're human beings <laughs> and human beings, you know, kind of get set in their way. They get comfortable. What's been working is good enough, you know, so we tend not to try and uncover, is there a better way? You know, even if it is 15 seconds, to some people, 15 seconds seems trivial. But if we look at 15 seconds times a force multiplier of number of folks or right. number of projects, really, really starts to see huge returns.
0: What's interesting about that is, you know, you talk about 15 seconds here and 15 seconds there. And the hard part sometimes is maybe it isn't that that the job is run more efficiently, but that people are less crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> that, that they're actually enjoying their job a little more. They feel a little bit less pressure and they stay longer they retire later they 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 stay in the company or they stay in the industry so i think it's funny how the easiest and really the only way at the moment to measure the the output the roi for lack of a better word of efficiency improvements is did we get more value per per hour but ultimately i think that that isn't the only way to only reason to do things because also people that are less rushed make fewer mistakes, and safety is impacted by that. So it's an interesting one to, to think about how these improvements can provide benefits beyond just dollar figures.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, and all these points that you're making are things that we need to resolve. You know, with the demographic drought and people leaving the construction industry back at the last recession and not coming back, demands on the industry haven't really changed, but the labor force certainly has. You know, so how do we do more with less? Yeah. And I think we circle fully back to having clear processes, efficiency, you know, technology as a catalyst. We're kind of right back to where we started.
0: And you brought up some ideas about how the way we build might wind up changing. Obviously, some of it won't because there's certain things you just have to do. But the idea of a little more off-site or some things being done in a factory that may have been done on-site, I think that you wind up saying, we have some very valuable um, decision makers. We have some very valuable operators who I don't want them spending time you know, installing conduit or, or fabricating conduit on-site. Instead, I want them focused on hard stuff that only a human can do. So I, I feel like that might be Intersecting with this idea of repeatable processes, because to the point you made earlier, it's a lot easier to repeat things in a controlled environment than it is out out in the field. Do you see some of that happening?
1: I do. We're seeing more and more every day. You know, unitization, kit packing, offsite fabrication. We're seeing some projects now that are doing fully sheeted and scanned, inclusive of windows, modular wall panels. So now I can cover a high-rise building in a fraction of the time. I think really. Where the power comes is, is kind of back to the basics of value stream mapping. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of things that we do, conventional construction is not really value add when you look at it in the eyes of the client, you know, motion, mm-hmm. inventory, mm-hmm. waste, you know, all those kinds of things that if we could start trimming away that fat and actually produce the project quicker, more reliably, the higher quality and at a lower cost. I think it's, it's the way of the future. I think we're going to see more and more.
0: Yeah, it seems like we are. And there's certainly a lot of people trying to get it done, right? Everyone from, you know, we've heard the stories about Katerra, but the idea wasn't a bad one. They're just, you know, the market is what it is. But but you're hearing lots of different ways people are trying to automate a piece over here or simplify a piece over here or produce things differently. It's a it's a pretty interesting time right now to, to, to see all of that coming together.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That kind of coupled with robotics on site to your point earlier about people being able to work longer how do you relieve them of the fatigue and the wear and tear on the body right we are human you know so you look at like sam the brick laying robot or we've got machinery now that will automatically install the drywall when it's really supervised by a human being we can't remove the human being from the process but can we streamline some of the repeatable heavy lift if you will
0: and when you point earlier about a force multiplier, right? Can we have a robot or something that is robot-like that allows one person to do the work of three so that you don't have to go find three people when there really aren't three people where you're building? Correct. So how do you, how do you tie this some of this back to your experience in pre-construction? Because it feels like that's the nexus between design and, and construction, obviously, where you can start to introduce some of these ideas that weren't necessarily specified by the, by the design team. And they may or may not traditionally be part of means and methods, but in the and the pre-con phase, do you find that that is an opportunity sometimes to say, well, you know what, we can we can save some money, time, or or materials by doing it this way instead of that way?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's just the, the concept of bringing up the conversation with all the stakeholders so we can get engineer and architect involved at the table along with the client and say, what if, you know, have we considered doing that on the front end? It's really difficult to kind of follow conventional design. We get into construction and then flip it to an offsite manufacturer project. That's hard to do. So you really have to be planning for it at the onset, which takes that alignment and that team collaboration that we were talking about earlier.
0: Yeah, I love that. So as you think about scaling this and some of these ideas we're talking about in the general point of change management, you know, it's, it's hard to do everywhere. In fact, entire books are written about change management when everyone's sitting at a desk and they all get the same emails and have the same SharePoint and all that. And that's really hard to do when people are out in the field and they're constantly solving different problems and their, their projects aren't aligned with each other time-wise. How do you think about change management in that context? So, so let's say you've got a new process and you want that to be adopted by different project teams. When you think about new processes and, and kind of change at the executional level, how does it get adopted across a company?
1: Yeah. You know, I think it starts with people understanding the why behind change, hmm? you know, change for the sake of change feels like motion. If I'm on the receiving end of that, you right. know, one more thing that I've got to do. So I think when we when we think through change and process revision and altering the way that we do business, I think the main challenge is really to kind of communicate why, why are we looking to make this change? You know, whether it's the 15 seconds saved or it's an equivalency in dollars, or, you know, it's just, you know, overall a better experience for our client. People can get behind the why. Um, and I think that's a step that a lot of people just tend to pass when we're here, Tomorrow we're going to start doing it this way. And nobody really knows why other than I was told to, you know, and people tend to fight that. So I think we, we have seen success, you know, with adoption of change and implementation of change when you really put forth the why. Have the conversation, let people understand it, let them buy in, you know, and kind of more wind in the sail. That makes sense. I wonder sometimes also, though, when this happens a lot in the technology world,
0: where people try to provide a why that is at a different level from where the receiver is thinking. So in other words, oh, you know, this is going to make the, the, the company more efficient. I'm not convinced I care about that right now. And Of course, in abstract, I do. But am I going to expend the effort to adopt this thing so that some big, you know, some big grouping of all of us is going to improve? Or do I need to hear how it's going to make my job, my project, and my life better? Do you find that, that 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 helps to 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 really drill it down to how this is going to make your job go better?
1: I think that's the most impactful to the person that you're asking to adopt the change. We're all we're all a bit selfish, right? And what's this mean to me? Um, so I think if you can explain that, how it's going to save you the individual implementing this change that time or make you more efficient or the byproduct of that is an increase to a bottom line or a better experience for the client and repeat business for us. When you can really kind of hit home to the people that you're asking to do the work, what it means to them, that's the ultimate uh, or, or driving point for that.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, ultimately, selfish or not, people have priorities. And they've got too many demands on their time and too many things that, that, that were, are asking for their attention and complexity that they're barely hanging on. So asking them to do another thing, you got to give them a reason to prioritize this instead of the other five things, or in addition to the other five things.
1: Yeah. And I, and I think, Hugh, the other thing that helps with change management is just kind of biting it off in bite-sized chunks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, a holistic change is really hard to do. You know, one of the first things that I helped to bring to Marker when I came here was Procore. Mm -hmm. So really just making those changes of how we're going to manage and administer, you know, project management solutions, communication, transparency, all these things that we talked about earlier. Procore is a huge platform, right, As, as you well know. Yep. So, you know, our approach with our implementation team was really about what can we really kind of come out of the gate with? Hit the ground running, small bite sized chunks with minimal impact to people, but let them see the power of the platform. You know, so documentation control right out of the gate, super important to what we do. Mm-hmm. We were able to kind of bite that off. You start getting a lot more buzz. People start to see, man, this is a lot more effective for me, not just for me, but for the people that are working for us, our subcontractors. Better visibility for our clients, and then what happens is you end up with with more folks that are kind of carrying the torches and the pitchforks, you know, as we're storming the castle, and and they're yearning for more, and then we just start, you know, burning, you know, this this huge fire. It starts from a smolder to a huge a huge fire, and they're wanting more change. That's also helpful when you can catch it.
0: It's funny I've I've heard a version of what you just said a few times, where once people in the field or or generally in the construction project teams. Realize something works and it 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 works for them. They want more and more of it. I've heard exactly that in the context of dashboards and and sort of reporting back on certain things. That once people understand it, you have the opposite problem that now everybody wants a dashboard, <laughs> and they don't and they don't have the data isn't ready and the people to do it aren't aren't available so on. I think this speaks to a, a, a point that that comes up a lot is that construction's so slow to adopt technology. And you know I I will often say I don't think that's true. I think that the, the the bar for adopting technology is much more immediate than other places. And people aren't going to adopt technology for the sake of it. But the minute they, sh- they see that it helps in, in any of the dimensions that matter, it's actually pretty quick. Again, I talk about reality capture and drone. I mean, who else is using drones other than like the military? and the police maybe. When construction sees that something is going to do something either in a very new way or a cheaper, faster, safer, better way, it actually is a pretty good industry at adopting. It's just incredibly practical.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that hundred percent. You know, I think there's different, different shades to that argument too, depending yeah. on the company and the culture. Yeah. I'm fortunate here at Marker that they are very forward thinking, you know, before I got here. Um, They had brought in some technologies, they believed in the mission, put the resources to them and made a commitment to give it a whirl. And they've stuck. You know, we've got several drone pilots here. We're utilizing drones, we're utilizing LIDAR, we're utilizing VDNC and laser scan. So still kind of fairly early, you know, in construction when you look at the longevity. But, you know, giving that a lot of thought, you know, and, and seeing the potential for the return and yearning for that efficiency, you know, it's nice that the culture here supports that.
0: Well, let's end with what Marker does. So we've talked about Marker and your role there, but but what is marker's obviously a, a general contractor, but what sorts of things does Marker do?
1: Yeah. So we play in a lot of uh, different markets segments here. Marker is third generation family held. Uh, we're in our 66th year. So we've kind of seen the full gamut. We do a lot of industrial work, have a pretty good client base for that and always looking to grow. We're also doing higher education, healthcare, senior living. And we also have a development company kind of under the umbrella, but mm-hmm. it's starting to do a lot more mixed use, multifamily and industrial warehousing. So we touch a lot of different markets, which, you know, kind of circling back all the way through the process and no two projects being alike. Markets have their own kind of succinctness too. So something we've got to be cognizant of.
0: That makes sense. And you guys are centered in the, in the Ohio area.
1: We are. Yeah. Original office was in Bellefontaine, Ohio, about Mm -hmm. 45 minutes to the Northwest of Columbus. And our second office in Columbus, we opened in 2011. Awesome.
0: Well, Mike, this has been great. I, I love talking to folks like you that have seen the industry from a number of angles and are really driving change. So thank you for being on the podcast.
1: You, I appreciate it. Really enjoyed talking with you.